Okay, so we are now on the third sermon. Um, so I have no idea what this one's about. Um, it soups confuses me. Um, thus the shrug emoji. So um, I so I'm not gonna have anyone read this. I didn't time uh, this, and it seems like I'm going longer than I thought, so, um, yeah. Okay, so in 2, two verse 10, we see, uh, I didn't put it up there, but the, the date for this one is December 18th, and this period of time is during the growing season for the spring harvest. And again, it comes at a time when the people wouldn't have had super pressing things that they needed to get done. And um, we see here that Haggai is specifically talking to the priests about the people. And he asks them two questions, and they give him two answers. Um, and so it can be easy to gloss over the fact that Haggai and the priests are having this Q&A time up at the BTC. But there's actually something really cool just in this. Um, and so in the past prophets, they talked so much against the corruptness and the evil of the priests. And Ezekiel 22:26 is just one example. Its priests have done, talking about Jerusalem, I believe. <laughs> so anyways, its priests have done violence to my teaching and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Um, interesting verse. And then we have Leviticus 10, 1, um, which is what the function of the priests was supposed to be. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. After God's people had lived so long doing the wrong thing, I just cherish every single, even tiny little thing where we see them getting it right. Um, and that's Leviticus 10.1 is exactly what we see the priests doing in the book of Haggai. Giving a ruling, teaching about unclean things, unclean things, holy things versus not holy things. And so Haggai asks these questions, but it's not because he doesn't know the answers. He's asking because he wants to prove a point. And so the first thing he asks is, if you carry consecrated meat in your garment, your clothes, and then you touch other kinds of food with the clothes that had held the holy meat, does that other food become holy? And the answer is no. If someone, and the second question is, if someone touches a dead body and becomes unclean, and then that unclean person touches food, does the food become unclean? And the answer is yes. And so when we're talking about unclean, we're talking about ritual purity and impurity from the book of Leviticus. And so the similarities between these things are that it's not, you know, the consecrated meat touching the neutral food. And it's not the unclean dead person touching the neutral food. But it's another step in between. Um, there's someone, yeah. And so, 
Another similarity is that the dead body transmits its uncleanness to the person who touches it. And also the holy meat, probably from a sacrifice or something, makes the garment holy. And so I had never thought about, you know, you know the transmission of uncleanness. It's very clear. But I never thought about the transmission of holiness um, until I read about it in commentaries. And um, so for some reason that took five pages Um, Holiness is transmissible. And I didn't write notes on it because it gave me a headache looking at their argument. So I just used this graph that I think shows it visually, which is nice. Um, And so basically what's happening is that holiness is transmissible through first-degree contact, first-degree direct contact, but not second-degree indirect contact. Uncleanness, however, is transmissible uh, through both first-degree direct and second-degree indirect contact. And so, what's the point? Well, all of this is like a setup for what Haggai wants to communicate about the people. Haggai then said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, says the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So there are many of God's people, um, he actually says this, yeah, who are unclean. And this means what they touch, the work of their hands, is unclean because as the priests have demonstrated, uncleanness is transmissible. The work of their hands at the moment is the temple. God also says that their offerings are unclean as well. And these are two both huge things that should not be so. Um, It doesn't give a reason why there's this unholiness, there's this uncleanness. Um, It just says that they are. Um, And so why, this is a question... Why was it a problem for the people to be unclean? Quick shout out, what you think? Just scream it. That's awesome. Yes, I love it. Go Imogen. I'm sorry, I should have ran this microphone back to you. Um, That was good. Like Imogen said, Israel was to be a reflection of God's character to the nations, showing the people around them. The beauty of this God was vastly different than all the other gods. And as God's light to the nations, they needed to accurately reflect his character to people who didn't know him. Um, Bringing it back to, I believe, the key verse of Leviticus, you know, you are to be holy for I, the Lord, am holy. Um, And so in 2, 15 to 19, we see a contrast between the people's past and their future. Um, Specifically, the past covenant curses that they had experienced, as well as the future blessings that are coming. And so in 2, 15 to 19, God wants the people to reflect on the ways that they had been um, experiencing covenant curses and how they were pointers supposed to guide the people back to him. 
And in here we have some more rhetorical questions asking, you know, is there any seed left? Are your crops still yielding nothing? And to me, it seems like the implied answer is no. Um, there is no seed left, you know, in the barn or wherever. They're, the crops are not yielding nothing anymore. They're growing. And so it's a reflection on the past discipline of the Lord, as well as a promise of his coming blessings. Just as God was concerned with the holiness of his people in the Old Testament, so he is concerned with the holiness of his people today. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.5, says that believers in Jesus are a holy priesthood. And while holiness looks different from what it looks like to Old Testament Israelites, um, it is just as necessary. There is no amount of works that we could do to be righteous in God's sight, but it's through Jesus' righteousness that we are able to stand blameless before our holy God. And now, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we are able to, and we have the privilege and the responsibility to live a life of holiness, a life that is set apart and consecrated unto God for the purpose of pointing people to him. That aspect and role of God's people is still unchanged. We're still called to the same thing today. Praise God for the Holy Spirit that helps us do this. And, oh, I am doing a pan time. We might end early, actually. Um, so, Sermon 4 is in 2, uh, 2 verse 20 to 23. Um, yeah, and so, actually, I will have someone read this. Can someone read 2, 20 to 23? The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the, their, the horses and their riders shall fall, every one by the sword of a comrade. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Okay. So, this oracle, I believe, is about God is in control and his promises still stand. And so, this is an encouragement that is specifically uh, given to Zerubbabel, but that message would have also been an encouragement for all the people as well. Um, And so, we see... The language used in verses 21 and 22 is very strong, very strong language. You know, shaking heavens and earth, overthrowing kingdoms, chariots and horses, falling down while their riders strike each other. Um, Very powerful language. And the mention of chariots and horses is reminiscent of the final moment of deliverance from Egypt. In Exodus chapter 14, 
we see Pharaoh's chariots and his horses fall into the sea. And in Exodus chapter 15, which is the poetic version of the same story, God is described as overthrowing his enemies. So we have um, the chariots and the overthrowing in Exodus 14 and 15. Um, And the language is also similar to the book of Daniel, with the talk of kingdoms being shaken and overthrown. And in Daniel, all that was in reference to the kingdom of God being established. By incorporating imagery from both Exodus and Daniel, what is God communicating about this oracle? Take 30 seconds and talk about it, or a minute or two. What do you think the purpose is of this imagery um, with the person or people next to you? Take two minutes. Okay. Alrighty. Uh, It sounds like the talking has died down. So, questions like these are super interpretive and really messy and ethereal, if you will. Um, But does anyone have any thoughts, any perspectives that they would like to share about the imagery being used here? Here we go. Super shaky, but I think maybe, maybe Zerubbabel is like a type for Jesus, the Messiah coming in, like the establishment, the overthrowing of all the old nations of the earth, and the establishment of like the signet ring is a symbol of royal authority. Yeah, and because Zerubbabel is a descendant of David, it's continuing that same Davidic line as that was fulfilled in Jesus. Talk about how the Exodus fits in. Fits in here. Anyone? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just think it's interesting when it's when you're using like this imagery like from, from the Exodus and kind of like how in the same way as them like in the same way as the Exodus, they're now like being taken back to the promised land. And just like showing how he was faithful back then to like to deliver them. They're now like those faithful to bring them back now. That they're kind of like giving a new chance of like they can make it right this time. Nice. Nice. Anyone else? I think this stuff is so much fun. I don't know if it's heresy, but it's a party, so that's good. Um, <clears throat> Alright, so tying in both aspects of the imagery here, what's being said is that. Um, In relation to the line of David, uh, there will be a day when God brings about another Exodus-like moment of deliverance at the time when God's eternal kingdom is established through a Davidic person. And I wonder if any of that is going to happen in the third quarter. Spoilers, Haggai, warn us. Okay, so in 2.23, we see a contrast. Um, Well... In contrast with another book, what we see is that Zerubbabel is God's signet ring. Um, and so the word in Hebrew is that word in italics, 
it's like really guttural and I can't do it. I wish I could. Chotham, I don't know, but I listen to the guy on Strong say it over and over again. Um, Still can't say it. So this word means seal or signet ring, and in the Old Testament it is used 14 times. Eight times it is used to talk about an actual physical ring or seal. And then four times it is used in a more poetic sense. Uh, Yeah, a more figurative sense. And twice in the Bible, only twice, it is used in comparison to a person. One of those times is here in Haggai 2.23. And then the only other time it's used about a person is in Jeremiah 22, verse 24. And so let's see if there's anything intentional happening there. Um, so Jeremiah 22, 24 through 30. Someone read this. Uh, 22, 24 through 30. Oh, wow. That was awesome. I flipped it. <laughs> As I live, says the Lord, even if King Kaniah, son of Jehoiakim of Judah, with a signet ring on my right hand, even from there I would tear you off and give you into the hands of those who seek your life, into the hands of those whom you are afraid, even into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. I will hurry you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die, but they shall not return to the land which they long to return. Is this man Kaniah a despised broken pot, a vessel no one wants? Why are he and his offspring hurled out and cast away in a land that they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, record this man as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting in the throne of David and rolling again. All right, so it's a pretty harsh passage, yeah? Pretty gnarly. So what I want to draw attention to here is how Jehoiakim is compared to a signet ring um, that God tears off and kind of just throws away and discards, as well as the last verse when it says, um, none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So keep those two things in mind. Um, And so... What's going on here is that Jehoiachin, who his nickname is Kaniah, it's really confusing. Um, yeah, so he was a bad king, and Jeremiah 21 is a chapter where God goes through a list of three kings of the last few of Israel, of Judah, um, and he's renouncing and he's rebuking them for their evil and sin. Jehoiachin is included in this, even though he didn't reign for long. Um, yeah, so again, there's the imagery of God ripping off Jehoiachin as a signet ring, as well as the strong statement that there will never be um, any of his offspring sitting on David's throne and ruling Judah ever again. And I remember during my SBS, I forget who taught this book, but they emphasized how um, this was kind of like God saying the Davidic covenant was, it was, it was, an interesting implication to the Davidic covenant um, that, yeah. 
perhaps that it had been rejected or cursed, uh, which I thought was really impactful. Um, And then we have Haggai 2, verse 23, which says, um, God will take Zerubbabel and make him like a signet ring for... Um, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. And so what this does in the verse of Haggai is it addresses the question of the seeming rejection of God's covenant with David um, through the cursing of Jehoiachin's line and says that it has not been rejected, it has not been forgotten, and that God's promise to David still stands, um, which was... Important, You know, they were being ruled by the Persians. It seemed like this covenant could have been forgotten. So this is addressing a valid concern of the audience. Um, We have arrived at the end. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I hope you guys will continue to enjoy this book in your charts. Haggai is a beautiful, beautiful book. And it reassures God's people that contrary to appearances, the covenant still stood and they could work in the confident hope that he was with them. Just wrapping things up on a more applicational note overall. um, I love this book. It's so like literally every single sermon is an applicational point that can transform your life. Um, But there's something else that God has really been speaking to me through this book and through um, very recently. So, yeah. Fair warning. I'm about to say God's promises a billion times, and it's going to sound repetitive, but please bear with me. (laughs) Um, So the people that Haggai spoke this message to had expectations when they returned from exile. They knew the promises God made to their ancestors, and they anticipated great things to come. However, those expectations of God's promises left them disappointed because their expectations were not met. And that disappointment didn't just stop at God's promises, but it led to them doubting his character and whether he was with them. This pattern of God's people having expectations about his promises doesn't stop with Haggai's generation, as you'll see. Um, As you'll see when we step into the New Testament and meet the first century Jewish community. They knew and they trusted in God's promises. And they had ideas about what it would look like for the kingdom of God to be brought by the Messiah. And that's good. God wants his people to trust in his promises because they are trustworthy. However, their expectations of how things would play out was drastically different than the way God fulfilled those promises. The first century Jewish people wanted a strong king to overthrow the oppressive empire they were suffering under and make them into a great nation again. Were they trusting in God's promises, or were they trusting in their expectations of his promises? The way that God fulfills every single one of his promises in Jesus was far better than anything that they could have imagined, but their expectations of those promises clouded their sight 
from seeing the living, breathing fulfillment that was, of all their hopes, that was walking in front of them. Every person in here um, has expectations going into next quarter, whether you realize it or not, whether you know what they are or not. Um, it's unavoidable, and it's not a bad thing. It's, it's very natural. I, I did. <laughs> I know I did. Um, I, I was aching, and I was hurting after Prophet's Quarter. It, it yeah, Prophet's Quarter was gnarly, and it was intense. Um, that verse, as a, as a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you, became real to me during the Prophet's Quarter. It was my favorite, hands down, favorite quarter, but it wiped me out. I felt like I was clawing my way through desert in search of the oasis that had to be right around the corner. It was so clear to me how broken and in desperate need of a Messiah Israel was. And it was even clearer how broken and how in need of him I was. And so last year, I came into the New Testament quarter with expectations. But I didn't realize it until they weren't met, and I'm glad that they weren't. I was crushed, and I went through a whole thing that I can, I'm probably going to bring up in the next quarter teaching, but my expectations weren't met. Weren't met. But that was the kindness and that was the grace of God because um, the promise of Jesus is a hope that can be trusted. Um, And although I had expectations for what who Jesus was, the way that he revealed himself to me was far greater, far grander, far more beautiful than any expectation I could have possibly come up with or possibly imagined so much better so much greater um and so although there might be a time next quarter when your expectations of him aren't met aren't met good i hope they're not uh because the beauty of who jesus surpasses is the beauty of who jesus is surpasses anything you could ever think or hope or dream um and yeah, I something I want to emphasize so much is God is faithful to his promises and we can trust in them. That is that goes beyond a shadow of a doubt. But we can't confuse God's promises with our expectations of how he's going to fulfill them because that will lead to disappointment, that will lead to discouragement, that will lead to doubting his character and it's dangerous. And, um, yeah. I am walking through that right now, actually. Um, there, um, I, so God, I'm sorry, I'm going to be vague with this, didn't make any notes. Um, so there's a promise that 
I believe God gave to me, and I thought that I was coming to part of the taste of walking into that promise. And um, since Thursday, it's just been a roller coaster of wildness, but I, I realized that. I was actually holding on to the way I thought those promises would be fulfilled closer than I was actually holding on to and trusting in God's character. And so when what I thought was going to happen didn't end up, is not going to happen, um, I was so angry and I was so hurt and I was so mad at God and these were misplaced emotions because he hadn't done anything, but it was because I had put my hope in my expectations of his promises to me and not in just his promises. And the thing that God has been speaking to me is just what he has in store for us is so much greater than what we think that he has than what we hope that he has and I've said it a million times the past five minutes, and I will again because it's just so important. God is faithful to fulfill his promises and not our expectations of his promises. I, I don't know what God has been speaking to you today. I don't know what or if anything has hit your heart from today's lecture, but I know that God speaks and I trust that he has spoken to you. Um, I, I'm a big believer in making time to respond to what God is speaking. And so for the next few minutes, I'm just going to play a worship song. And um, I ask that you would just open up your heart. And, you know, whether that's you need to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, whether that's you need to feel the comfort of God's presence, um, God knows what you need. And... He is always ready to speak and always ready to move, um, and I believe that he will this morning, um, afternoon. So I'm just going to pray, and then I will press play. God, I thank you for this book of Haggai. I thank you for the beauty that it holds, Lord, this encouragement that you give to a discouraged and distrustful people. God, you are so good. And Holy Spirit, um, as we take these next few minutes to respond, as we take these next few minutes to open our hearts to what you have to say, I ask that you would speak what every single person in here needs to them, Lord. You know what it is. You know their hearts. You know where they're at. And so I just lift up this time to you, and we say that we trust you. And God, I just ask that we would be obedient to what, to what you speak to us.
Jesus, we thank you that you speak, Lord, both both through your word and also through just speaking to us personally. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just seal what you've done in the hearts of students here today, God. I ask that they would see your beauty, see your character, see um, all these beautiful things about who you are through the book of Haggai. But we lift up every single chart to you, and we ask that your will be done in our charts. <laughs> um, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh-huh.